Um, so you guys, we're studying First Peter, and we've been in it for a while, and we're at the last chapter, and we're going to finish First Peter today. I understand that you guys got to hear um, Archbishop Benjamin Kwashi last week while I was out of town with the fellows, um, but I want to cover this. There's a, there's a number of things here worth looking at, um, but the, the strange thing about many letters in the New Testament is that the very end of it, that it's kind of like a cleanup time, like a whole bunch of little things that get jammed together. And I love coherence, having something that's like one thing that all makes sense. This is not going to be that, okay? This is because the letter isn't that. This is like, hey, here's a few more things I wanted to say before I sign my name. So this is going to feel like a good message has one point with a couple of subpoints. This has like seven points, okay? But we're just going to follow Peter and let him, let him say what he says, and we'll try to take it apart. And I think there's a number of things that are interesting in here. We can spend more or less time um, as you guys find it interesting yourselves. So... Uh, Let's see. Why don't I do it like this? I'll, I'll read it a section at a time, and we'll kind of talk about it a section and make some, make some observations as we go. And then we'll be done, Peter, and then I'll tell you when we're done what we're doing next. So 1 Peter 5, verse 1 says, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. Not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. All right, that's the first chunk. Now, there's a whole bunch of things in here. Who's, he, who's this first paragraph written to you guys? Elder. Okay, what does that mean? What would you say? Leadership. leadership. Okay, so the church leadership. So it is written to the, written to the church leadership. The Greek word here for elder is presbyter. Um, and it basically, it, it means what elder sounds like. It means old person, okay? So elder, you're, you know, when we say respect your elders, we mean respect the old guys. But that, that's the word that we use for, for church leaders. But what's curious about this passage here is it's not just to the elders. He says to the elders among you. So that's the elders. But then he also refers to them in verse 2 as shepherds. And then he refers to them also in verse 2 as overseers. So we have elders, shepherds, and overseers. And essentially what, what he's doing here, this is kind of an interesting little kind of note of history, is these are all the offices that we ascribe in the church. The word for, do you guys know what the word for overseer is? How we usually translate it and what it really means, what it really says in Greek? Do you know overseer? Bishop. It's bishop. It's episkopos, right? There's a couple of different times in the Bible, in the New Testament, where our leader, the terms for leadership are all used interchangeably. You see it here. In fact, I'll show you a couple of these things. Um, and you may find this boring, but I think this is worth knowing. There's a couple of things that we're going we're gonna to kind of riff off of this. So right here in 1 Peter 5, we've got elders, we've got shepherds, we've got bishops. And they're all the exact same thing. They're all interchangeable. Go to Acts 20. You'll see the same phenomena happening. Acts 20. Uh, I don't know. Verse something. 15, 17. Let me see. Uh... Uh, okay, verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. He's speaking to the elders of the church, the presbytos, right? And then he's going to say down, as he's talking to them, he's going to say, where is it? He's going to call them all bishops. Uh, oh, yeah, verse 20, 28, 27. I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. 28, keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you. Episcopos, bishops, be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with his own blood. Titus does the same thing. Go to Titus. 
chapter 1 and New Testament here. Titus 1, 5 says, The reason I left you in Crete was you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders, presbyters, presbyters in every town as I directed you. But then in verse 7 he says, Since an overseer, episcopos, is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, a bishop, right? And he's not, he's not making a distinction. These are all the same thing. The New Testament treats elders and bishops and shepherds as all the same thing. And yet we do not, right? We very distinctly would say, no, a presbyter is like a local, local, I'm a presbyter, right? Quig is a bishop, not because he's a local leader, but because he is kind of a regional director as well. And we kind of created this, 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 this hierarchy using biblical language in a way that's not strictly biblical. Okay, does that, you understand what's going on so far? But here's the thing. It happened literally in the first generation of Christians. It's really a curious thing. Um, do you know who, what we call the guys that were, who, who we call the leadership of the church as soon as all the apostles were dead? Do you know this, this, this crowd at all? Kelly, who are these guys? Church fathers. Church. Have you ever heard the term of the church fathers? Is that a familiar language? So this is something that just kind of in your, in your church history, and you may be thinking, who cares? Just stay with me, because it's helpful to know kind of where we come from. The first generation of Christian leadership is the apostles. It's Peter, it's Paul, it's James, it's John, it's these guys. But they all die, and the leadership gets passed on to the next group. And we call those guys the fathers. And they're guys like, you might, you might recognize some of their names, you might not, but Clement, uh, Ignatius, um, Polycarp, but he kind of drifts into the second, kind of the third generation of leadership. But we have these guys, and right out of the gate, they begin writing letters to each other. Paul was not the only guy that writes letters. And Ignatius was a disciple of John, the, not John the Baptist, of John the Apostle. And as soon as, when, when John is gone, Ignatius kind of comes into leadership. And Ignatius is the guy that basically says, you know what, from now on, we're going to start calling our regional leaders Episcopos. And we're going to call our local leaders El, the presbyters, the, the, the elders. And from that point on, we've had the structure that we have. And so some, sometimes folks will look at our church government structure. We are Episcopalian. We're our, in our, not in our denomination, but in our governmental structure, meaning that we are ruled by bishops. And some people would look at that and say, well, I don't see that in the New Testament. Really what you see is elders and episcopos are the same thing. And that argument is completely valid. It's absolutely true. That's biblical, biblically accurate. But it is stunning that the guy that actually knew John and walked with him writes the letters that initially says, you know what we need to do? This thing is growing, and as things grow, they require greater levels of organization. And so he begins in his writings to distinguish between elders and bishops, and it happens very, very quickly. So again, you may not care at all, but if you ever are, you're ever involved in a dispute about, like, why do you go to a church that has an Episcopalian government when we don't really see that in the New Testament, I think you just yield the ground and say, yeah, it's true, absolutely true. But within like, you know, within the first century, literally, this, this structure developed and we've been following it ever since. Okay, makes sense? So I am a presbyter and in the language of our church today, I am not a bishop. But the way that Peter frames it out, I am a shepherd and I am a bishop. It's all, it's all one thing. But it's grown and evolved in our, as our church structure became a little more complex. Make sense? Okay, let's keep going here. Here's what he's going to say to these guys. He says, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Does anything strike you as strange about, about Peter's claim right there? People contest, believe it or not, people will contest Peter's authorship of this book on the basis of 1 Peter 5.1. What would be, is anything strange about that? 
Anything at all weird? He says he's a witness to it. Yeah. He says he's a witness to what? The sufferings. Was he? No, he, he rolled. He rolled. Isn't that interesting, right? So Peter, I mean, distinctly, as Jesus is getting dragged away and crucified, Peter's like, I'm out. And he wasn't distinctly, he, he specific, quite specifically, wasn't there. And yet, he still says, I am a witness to his suffering. So what do we do with that, Fetz? You can do a lot of stuff with it. <laughs> what would you advise we do with that? Well, he probably saw some of the suffering. Just not all of it, maybe. Yeah. You guys want to feel like you guys feel like that's nitpicky? Sure, sure. Those were suffering. Yeah, I, I, I think that's the right answer. I mean, there's a, I think Jesus suffered in a lot of different ways. Clearly, he's, he's referencing the crucifixion. But he, he wasn't there. He wasn't at the foot. John was there. I mean, John says, Jesus says to John, you know, behold your mother, right? Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. So John was there in a particular way. Peter wasn't, but he was pretty darn close, right? And in fact, he was a witness to him getting dragged away and scourged. That's why he, why he fled. So again, if you ever hear this used as a claim of like, well, Peter couldn't have written it because it's not so-and-so, I don't, think that's, I don't think that's a valid claim. He was there. He just wasn't there at that exact moment that nails were being driven into his hands. But the suffering of Christ is the defining event of Peter's life. You see it. It's why he, it shows up over and over and over through this letter. He's just constantly pointing back to this crucifixion. And in fact, he himself was so uh, impacted by Jesus's, the manner, the specific manner of Jesus' death that he, do you know this story? That he refused to suffer the same fate. And so what did he do about it? That's right, John. He, he was crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to suffer the same fate of his Lord. But he couldn't get out of it. So he made it worse. What is that madness? Okay, so I'm going to give John point, I mean, Peter points for being a witness of Christ's suffering. Okay, so what is the call, you guys? This is perhaps a little bit less relevant to you because this is, this is an instruction not given to you. It's an instruction given to me. But what is to be the essence of this one who would be an elder or a shepherd or an overseer? What do you notice here is what he's telling him to do? There's a handful of things. What do you see, John? Do it willingly. Do it willingly, right? This is not a compulsory role. If you ever get, you know, if somebody forces you to be a pastor, that's probably a pretty bad scene, right? So we're doing it cheerfully. We're doing it willingly, right? What else? Not for gain. Not for gain, right? Does that mean you can't pay your pastor? <laughs> the kid, is, a, is a pastor allowed to get paid for doing the job? Can you defend that biblically? Yeah. How? The, the oxen is worth his... Very good. Very good, Catherine. Yeah, so Paul's going to say that, that you, should, you should honor your elders, and he says you should double honor the elders whose particular role is preaching and teaching. And that double honor, the first honor is, hey, good job. The second honor is, here's some money. And that's why he quotes that, you don't muzzle an ox while he's treasuring out the grain, which is such a strange proof text, right? You ever, you ever thought about that? What that means is that in the same way that an ox who was, was grinding... The grain, they're allowed to just like reach down their gummy ox lips and take out, take some of the grain out of the bucket. You're, if you're doing the work, you're allowed to take reward from the work that you're doing. The farmer gets to eat corn that he grows in his field, and the ox gets to eat the thing. A pastor gets to take money from the congregation. So he's not, he's not saying you can't do that, but 
Have you guys ever noticed that there is a certain subset of Christianity that loves to profit off its people? Have you seen this? There is huge money in this if you do it in a particular way. Like huge, unimaginable sums of money. And Peter, I think so clearly has a word to say to the guys that have just, you know, I don't know if we'll name names, but there's some people that have made like tens of millions of dollars off this. And Peter's like, come on, what are you doing? This is not, this is not the gig. I'm not greedy for money, but rather eager to serve, right? And then he reminds them, as he's been kind of doing all along, when the chief shepherd appears, then you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Think of the inverse of that. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when Jesus returns for, pick your guy, right? Let's name names. Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn. What is that? That is not going to go well for those guys, right? It's just going to be a dark day. He's saying he's coming. And you, when he comes, pastors, you want him to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You want that crown of glory. These are serious things that are going on. Okay, so this is what he's talking to. He's talking to the pastors, but then he shifts very quickly to this. Young men in verse 5. What do you guys have? Mine says young man in the NIV. Do you have something different there? Young men in the same way be submissive to those who are older. You who are younger. younger. Okay, so there's two options to this. What do you think this means? What might it, what's the most obvious direct sense of what it means? Different ages. Yeah, they're just talking to Max, right? That he's saying, okay, you, you submit to those who are older. What's the other possibility? What? It's, my Bible says they were of lesser rank and experience, so they're subject to the elders, seek their counsel. Okay, so essentially what that would mean, Catherine, is anybody that's not an elder. Remember in the same way we use the word elder? We use the word old guy to label our church leaders. I mean, elder simply means old, old guy, and we call that leader. And then he says to the young guy, so it might mean he's talking literally to Max, or it might mean he's talking to everybody that's not a, quote, elder, old guy, right? But whether or not, we're not sure exactly what he means. By the next sentence, it's clear that he's talking to all of us, right? Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, okay, and now we don't have to debate anymore, right? There's no, there's no longer any question if we're talking to a specific subset or to everybody that's not a pastor. And there's one command given to all of us here. What is it? Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Okay, now at the, at the risk of being hideously redundant, what is the greatest book on humility that I love and I think you should read? Do you know? Humility. And who wrote it? How many of you guys have read it so far? Right? What did you think? You guys, it's so good. It's so, so good. This guy, he just crushes it. Do you guys remember what he says are the three basic motives for humility? Does anybody remember this? This kind of fundamental argument that he makes, the three great motives we have for humility? Remember what they are? As a sinner. Okay, as a sinner? As a saint. As a saint? And as a creature. Okay, creature, sinner, saint. And this is the giant aha, you guys, in this book. This is what, and you should read it. This is the preface to the book, but honestly, it's just so worth reading. We have three great motives to be humble, creature, sinner, and saint. And he argues that because of our, our natural position before a creator, humility is the fitting thing. But because we've blown it so much, and like, who are we to stand up before this one who is holy? We're sinners. Like, we really should bend the knee. 
But then as saints, as the ones who have been shown so much grace and love and mercy, our lives should be this reflection of gratitude that we manifest in humility, right? All three of these things are true. Creature, sinner, saint. But he builds a case, I think a devastating case, that though we tend to focus on sinner and saint, the proper grounding for humility is our status as creatures. The humility is not a punishment for the sinner, and it's not an act of penance for those that have been given much. Rather, it was plan A all along, that you were never made to be great. You were made to depend on someone who is great. And he, and, he, and he walks through this book and he builds the argument, he makes the case that Jesus' entire ministry can be understood through the lens of humility. He's teaching on it constantly, modeling it, calling people to it, and, and yet it gets drifted away. This is one of these places in the New Testament that I think Andrew Murray can make his case properly so. All of you, me, Martha, right? All of you, all of us down through the room, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because why? What's his reason that he states? Because God opposes the proud. Does anybody recognize that? Because that shows up at least two other places in your Bible. Proverbs. You know what you know what's Proverbs? Proverbs three. You guys somebody's got notes. Proverbs three thirty four. God opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble. Do you know who else quotes that? This is kind of an interesting little note here. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know who else does it? James. It's James. It's James 4. If you read, if you read 1 Peter 5 and read James 4, you'd be like, oh, these, guys are reading, these guys are like, somebody's copying off somebody's paper here, right? And not only that, but the next thing that Peter says is also the next thing that James says, which is not at all related to this. So it's really, it's a curious little note of like, is somebody reading one, one or the other and being influenced by it, okay? But what, here's the only thing I want you to, there's so many things we could say and we have said in different times about humility. But to what does he appeal when he's calling you to be humble? He says, because, what is, what is the basis of his appeal? What's that? Because you want grace. That's right. And at, at a, more, a little more generic level, he's appealing to self-interest. He doesn't say, be humble because it will benefit others. He doesn't say, be humble because it's just the right thing to do. He says, be humble because... It'll be to your advantage, right? Because God opposes the proud. Like, you don't want to, you don't, who, is anybody here looking forward to be, you know, having God oppose them? He's like, this is a bad scene, but he gives grace to the humble. So I want you to notice how often, this, the New Testament does this over and over and over again, and it's, it's kind of the key to our lives, right? This is a really important thing. The New Testament endlessly appeals to self-interest, because it's the only thing that moves our needle. This is why we do things, right? You are driven, you're drawn to your own happiness. And the New Testament doesn't ever rebuke that. It doesn't say, I know that you want good things to happen, and so, you know, subdue that. No, it says, I know you want good things in your life. You want to have the wind in your back, not the wind in your face. And if you want the wind in your back, here's what I want you to do. Your longing to be happy, your longing for things to go well for you, is nothing that you need to repent of, it's nothing that needs to be rebuked out of us. This is how we are. But what has to change, and what must change, what Peter's trying to change, is he's trying to help us become wiser about predicting the things that will actually be successful. Right? I long, I long to be happy, but I'm often very foolish about choosing the course that will result in that. Right? This is what Peter's appealing to. He says, I know you want a happy life. You want God's blessing in your life. Here's how to get it. Jump on this train. 
And so think about that. As you, when you discipline your children, when you're engaging in relationships, when you're making decisions about your own life, never, you never need to subdue your longing to be happy. That's a good thing. But you almost certainly need to get smarter about the things that will actually succeed at that. That's what he's appealing to, right? Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And that's a pretty good reason. It's not the only reason, but it is the reason that he, that he appeals to here. It's the exact same reasoning that, that, that's going on with, with James. If you, flip, you don't need to look at it, but if you want to look over that, you'll see James 4. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It's everywhere. And then he says, verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, right? And then does he say, because that's a good thing to do? Because it's right? Because it will benefit others? What does he say? And it benefits you. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand so that he may lift you up in due time. I'm telling you, it's everywhere. And somehow we miss it. We, don't, we tend to not see it as if, we're just, as if we're supposed to function against our own self-interest. We don't. Yet we function within our self-interest. But we've got to get a whole, whole lot smarter about recognizing what's going to ultimately work. Because if all we can see is the happiness in five minutes and we're blind to the happiness in five years, then we're going to shipwreck our lives. He's appealing to, this, to the long-term real thing that actually works. And the shape of the gospel is the letter V, right? Have we said this a thousand times? This is how it always works. We choose the lowest place. And God exalts us to the highest place. We go down, we humble ourselves, and he exalts us. And this is the pattern. And if you invert it, and you try to say that I will exalt myself, you know where that goes? That goes right back down. Everything in the gospel is inverted. You want to save your life? Lose your life. You want to gain everything? Give it all away. And when, he said, when Jesus says things like this, that if you, must, if you want to save your life, you have to lose your, lose your life, he's not saying lose your life to lose your life. Right? He's saying lose your life, give it away, because the benefit to you is going to be absolutely overwhelming. And this is the path that we're, we're drawn to. But it takes an awful lot of work, at least it does in my life, to learn to trust him, that his pattern to make me happy is trustworthy, especially when I see another path that I think will make me happy but won't cost so much. And this is what he says, no, 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 just trust me. This is the way of the world. This is the way I've designed the world to work. Humble yourself, and he will exalt you. Okay, so far so good? How about this, verse 7. Has anybody ever had verse 7 lifted off the page for them? What does it say, Catherine? Go nice and loud. Well, I have the Amplified. Oh, you got some groovy Bible. Okay, then I'll just gi- I'll give it to you here. Well, give us, give us the Amplified version, and then I'll say it in normal English. Casting all your cares, all your anxieties, all your worries, and all your concerns once and for all on him, for he cares about you with deepest affection and watches over you very, very well. <laughs> That's so one of my favorite little books on writing is uh, Strunk and White's Elements of Style. Do you know it? They've got a, his most famous rule is omit needless words. And I don't think that guy read that book. Okay. Omit needless words. Here's what it says. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That too is quoting the Old Testament. You guys, the New Testament writers were steeped in the Bible. You know, does anybody know what that is? Psalm 55. Psalm 55. Casting your burdens on him and he will sustain. That's right. Very good. Psalm 55, 22. Now, that's not tre- it's for, here's the thing. This isn't treated as a quote. He doesn't say, uh, you know, as the psalmist says, cast all your cares on him. He just quotes it because he's just thinking what he's read, right? 
this is what we want to be. Wouldn't it be amazing as we walked around, people are like, oh, I know where you got that Furman. Like, that was actually Ephesians. And you weren't quoting Ephesians. You were just thinking about what you read 500 times in your last quiet times over the last 30 years, right? And that's what, that's what we see from Peter. He's not, I don't, I'm not even sure if he knows that he's quoting Psalm 55. He's just read Psalm 55. And he's learned that we can cast our cares on him. Now, this passage, this verse rather, this is somewhat important to me because I went through a season in my life where I was struggling terribly with anxiety and depression and I was seeing a counselor to kind of help me walk out of this wilderness of pain that I was in. And he loved this verse and he loved Psalm 55. And one of the things that he taught me and trained me that I'll just pass on to you, and at least in this brief setting, was that if, he, he basically said, Tim, you need to develop a theology of casting. To cast is to, is to throw, right? Is to place upon. He says, and Tim, if you have this jumble of cares, this tangled, you know, like a, like a fishing line, knot, mess, junk of your cares, those things are really hard to cast. It's really hard to like untangle yourself from this mess. And he taught me that essentially what you need to do if you're going to cast your cares on the Lord you're going to have to figure out what they actually are. You're going to have to do the difficult work to unbraid the mess. And that was kind of one of the things that he, that he did with me when we would meet every week. That he would walk with me and he would help me like, how do you like untangle this and say, Lord, this is the specific thing that I'm frightened of. Would you walk with me through this? Or this is the thing that makes me so sad and I'm just brokenhearted over this, an, an unbraided thing, and cast it on him. Or this is what makes me so furious. I just don't even know what to do because the injustice of this is just maddening. And identify. And t- instead of this mess of chaos, can you unbraid your things and say, Lord, this, will you carry this? This, I cast this on you. Can you do those things? And I, that, was, that has been a really helpful thing to me that I got to do the work to think and to find and to figure out because the mess is t- it's, it's, it's too hard to dis- dispense with. But if you do, if all you do is analyze it and then you put them in your drawer, and you're just keeping them, then it's probably not going to work, right? The invitation, because he cares for us. Again, self-interest. He cares about you. He wants good things for you. He's sad when you're sad, right? That we take these things and we cast them upon him in the belief, in the knowledge that he's actually wounded by the things that wound us, right? Did you want to jump on that? I'm so sorry. I apologize, but I loved your phrase, and I just wondered if you could please repeat it. Yeah. You said uh, that the counselor said, Tim... You need to develop a capacity to... A, well, a theology of casting. Theology of casting. Yep. No problem. Yeah, absolutely. A theology of casting, right? So, how are you guys doing with a theology of casting? This would, be, this would be a worthy skill. You know, I was... How old was I, Kelly, when my life fell apart? 45? So, however old you are or young, man, this would be good to know. How do I take these things, this big, tangled mess of thoughts and emotions, and you can't even distinguish, if you can't distinguish between your thoughts and your emotions, that's a problem. If you can't distinguish between your thought and your thought between your emotion and your emotion, it's just this mess. Can you do the work to unbraid and then give them to him? Surrender them. Let him walk with you through it. Yeah, Lily? I'm just curious, since uh, I think people are often deceived into confusing anxiety with um, self-deprecation or an attempted humility, but I feel like this passage points to a very firm relationship between self-exaltation and anxiety. Um, could you comment on that? 
Okay, so is the, the connection between anxiety and self-exaltation or self-deprecation, that's not obvious to me. So what's the connection there? Anxiety, but from my experience, I wasn't self-deprecating. I was just afraid. Okay, anxiety is fear. But that people often allow themselves to label their anxiety, to excuse their anxiety because people are more often likely to look at it as an aspect of humility rather than actually it's a self-centeredness and a self-exaltation and putting yourself as that. Like anxiety can actually indicate that you're making an idol of yourself. Okay. Okay, so okay, let me, let me unpack this here. So th this is a little bit new thinking to me. So you're saying that, your understanding is that anxiety is a function of self-exaltation. Yes. But people think it's a function of self-deprecation. Yes. Okay, so that might be true, but I don't know that it's true. Like when I was struggling with anxiety, I was afraid. I don't think I was exalting myself. I mean, anxiety, it was like there's this button in my head that makes you scared and somebody just put their thumb on it, you know, for like eight hours, and we would just wait. It's more than that it, it causes us to forget, to have remember, to remember testimony. Because I, I know when I get stuck in those places, like, if someone reminds me to speak testimonies, like what God has done for me, like that can be an immediate uplift. So instead, okay. instead of having yourself and all of your issues living in front of you, like God is put in his Right, okay. So that, that actually resonates. So one of, the, one of the most important, there's a lot of different things that kind of that got me out of that, that wilderness. One of them, one of the most significant things was I started keeping a gratitude journal. Um, and I would, well, there were two things. It was writing and reading. I want to really emphasize that. It was the act of writing and reading a gratitude journal. So in the midst of my fear, my, my prediction machine just broke, right? I mean, I, I knew exactly how this story was going to end. And it was going to end very, very badly. Um, and I knew it. And I tend to know everything that I know. Like, I, you know, I'm given to certainty. And I was certain that I know exactly how this thing is going to go, right? And that, that prediction machine, I had to become mistrustful of it. Um, and the thing that struck me the most, probably the most overwhelming thing that, was, that surprised me, was how absolutely persuasive my sorrow and my fear were. I don't know if you guys ever walked through this, but like when I, I would phase in and out of it, most of the day would be like sadness and fear. And then sometimes the fever would break at like, you know, four or five in the afternoon or seven or eight at night. And then there'd be a sense of like, gosh, what was that about? Like, and I would kind of come into my right mind and it wouldn't, the world wouldn't seem so dreadful and terrifying. But then in the morning it was like, oh no, no. Now, now I'm in my right mind. And that was nonsense. And it's exactly as dreadful as I thought that it was, right? Repeat, repeat, repeat. And just jam a fork in your throat. So uh, for me, what, one of the things that was really helpful in to break that cycle was I began to write at this orange, like kind of moleskin looking journal. And I would just write anything good. Like, I don't know, Kelly made a delicious dinner today, you know, like so the children cleaned up their room. I don't think I wrote that very many times, but maybe once, right? <laughs> like, something good happened, right? But then the secret was to go back and to read it. Because what I needed to find out, or, or, or I would write down the terrible things that I knew were going to happen that didn't happen. Like, because, and what I was, it was, it was a conscious effort to, like, to rebuild the prediction machine. Because it was so, 
Like I knew, I knew, like the grooves were so deep. You know how like water will run down a channel and then more water and, the, and the, the river gets deeper and deeper and deeper, right? And so for me, like my like everything is horrible grooves were just impossibly deep. And the gratitude journal was an attempt to make new grooves, to train my brain to think differently, right? And so I'm not sure how we got here. So um, what, but that, that. Testimony too, and that that's a form of, of testimony. Yes, it will, and, and, learning, and, and learning, a new, uh, learning a new way of thinking. I, I needed to not continue to go down. I, was, I needed to be less confident in my confident predictions of demise and become, and then to build, and to build a new set of expectations. Okay? And in the process of doing that, to get back to the text, I, one, one of the, another one of the steps was, look, and Lord, I am really afraid that this is going to be the outcome of this, and I can see it happening, but maybe I'm wrong. Could you not only, could you make it not happen, that would be, I would, that's really what I want, make it not happen. But also, could you make me stop believing that it's going to happen? Because the belief that it's going to happen is just about as bad as it happening if you run that tape 300 times a day. Does, does that make sense? And in fact, it's, there's a reality to this, that, like, that your brain, you experience imagined pain um, almost identically to the way that you experience real pain. And so even if it doesn't go terribly badly, but you thought it was going to go terribly badly, that's kind of the same thing. Right? And so we need to kind of get out of that. And what, what Peter's inviting us to do is to take those things and instead of rehearsing your griefs, which is what I was doing, cast them. Give them away. Give them to him. Stop running the tape because it's just going to drive you. It's just going to wear you down to a nub, which is pretty much what it did to me. Okay? Cat. Kind of to address that from another angle, and it, where it says in verse 6, to humble yourself and cast your anxiety on him, um, I myself have found that in trying to humble myself, I've become self-deprecating. Because I have to point out what's bad about me so I can be humble yeah. to what's good about other people. Yeah. Well, and so that's, and that, that's what Andrew Murray would say, that you don't need to, that, that humility is not the um, province of sinners. It is the reality of the creature. And so your humility, Kat, it can be, it can be, it, not only it can be, but it should be because you are made in the image of a God who loves you and he invites you not to bear the great burdens but to depend on him, you can relax. You can be humble. And that's really what Murray uses dependence and humility practically as synonyms. And that dependence is not because you're so stupid and wicked and evil and bad. And it's not because you're so in debt to this one who has shown you so much grace. It's because this is what he meant in the first place. Because he loves you and he made you to depend on him. And so humility properly understood, and, and it's not original with Murray. Murray's just teaching what the New Testament teaches, but that we missed, or at least that I missed, is um, it's good news that your humility does not, you don't need to, you know, self-flagellate yourself into humility, but it's really what he wanted us to have all along. Okay, we got to keep moving because the clock keeps ticking. All right, take a look at this. Uh, let's go to this, verse 10. Okay, so the, oh, by the way, I'll just tell you this. The second thing that he says is uh, about, the, about the devil. That's exactly what James, where James goes. Listen, look at Peter, but listen to James. James 4 says, um, um, God gives us more grace. This is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God and resist from the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Isn't that strikingly like the way that Peter orders it? He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. Okay? 
Two broad possibilities here. Either James or Peter are being influenced by each other, or they're both being influenced by a common source that just happens to know how the world functions, right? That this is true, that there is some fundamental relationship between our humble state before the Lord, our casting our cares upon the Lord, and our ability to resist the devil. It's interesting. There's, they both independently are making the same basic case. That's worth kind of chewing on. And drawing on Genesis 4. Um, Genesis 4. Okay, let's see. This is... Yes, at your door desires to master you. Is there humility language there? Well, it, it, it was his pride that was his downfall, I would say. Yeah, interesting. So, so, so this is where, where God comes to... Uh, let's see, Cain kills Abel, and then God comes to Cain and says, Cain's sin is crouching at your door. It desires to master you. And he kind of personifies evil. And there's a sense of, like, don't, don't give into it. And you're seeing Cain's arrogance is his downfall. Yeah, so sin always roots back to arrogance. I've never made that connection there. Certainly the, the resisting the devil language is very reminiscent of Genesis 4. I'd have to, I'd have to chew on the humility thing. I think that's pre, pre him killing his brother. Oh, is it? Okay, yeah. Is it? That's how 4 begins. So it's before it happens, and then he fails at that and murders. He can take a, he, he can take a position. He can make a decision. And that's kind of where the, you must resist it. Yes. And then he doesn't. Interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Okay, I'll have to go back and, and play around with that. Okay, we got five minutes. Go to 1 Peter 5.10. Listen to this. Tell me what does this mean? Uh, wait, that's not what I wanted. Hang on. Um, well, this is, okay, we'll do this first. 5.10 is just the thesis of the book, right? God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will after you have suffered a little while, he will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. I think we've seen all over and over and over throughout this book, suffering, 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 suffering. And he's like, but listen, it's not going to last forever. The suffering is brief. It may feel long. probably feels long. But it's not. But what's coming is something that's going to last forever. There's this eternal glory in Christ. And very sharp distinction, just suffering for a little while. Right? And this is what our lives are like. Man, sometimes you suffer for a little while. It just seems like a long time. But we're, what we're looking for is this eternal glory. And then he's going to use a, fra- a crazy little phrase. What does this mean in verse 13? He says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Who is, in, who is she, and why, what is she doing in Babylon? What does that mean? She who is in Babylon. What's that language? She who is in Babylon... Sends her greetings. What does that mean, Fetz? Is he referring to the exile? Is he referring to the exile in Babylon and in Israel? Yep. So, so when he says Babylon, our minds should go back to the Babylonian captivity, right? So he's talking about Babylon. He's saying, hey, remember that whole thing about when Nebuchadnezzar came and blew into town and crushed everything and dragged us away in, to, to live as exiles? That's the event. So who is she? Who is in, who is in Babylon? The church. Who said that? It is the church. John? Babylon is symbolically uh, any earthly force that opposes the church. So, okay, that's, and that's true. So there's two great wicked cities that the Bible is going to refer to over and over again. They both they kind of like hit their climax in Revelation. Who are the two big evil cities? Babylon. And? 
Rome. Rome, Babylon and Rome, okay? In this moment, he's not so much using it in the same way that John is using it, as much as he's saying, she who is in Babylon is the exiles. Y'all, you're in Babylon, okay? This is what he's been saying. Remember, we, we, we built our entire study of Peter around the claim that you're aliens, you're strangers, you're exiles, you're sojourners. To say that you're in Babylon is to, exactly, to say exactly the same thing. He's like, look around. This is not our home. It's never been our home. We're aliens. We're strangers. We're freaks in this place. And she who is in Babylon, it's no particular woman. She who is in Babylon is the church. He's, he's saying the, the community of believers who are the ones that are living out our sense of exile, she's the one. We are the one that sends greetings. It's the, the church is greeting the church. And so just never forget, right? When, think, when you're like, how is this madness happening? Well, it's easy. It's Babylon. We've been in Babylon for a long time. But we won't always be in Babylon. Babylon had an end date, 70 years, and they're out, right? Our exile also has an end date. I don't know what it is, but it's not going to last forever, right? In the meantime, we who are strangers, we who are the Babylonian exiles, we're faithful here. We seek the good of the city here. We love our neighbors. We do everything what we're supposed to do. It's just going to look really weird. They're going to think it's strange. That's okay. We do it strange. And then... He's going to come, and we won't be in exile for all of time. Okay, and the last thing. This is the final little note. This is a strange way to end this. But who's Mark? She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son, Mark. John Mark. What do we know about John Mark? He wrote uh, the Gospel of Mark. He wrote the Gospel of Mark. How do you know that? His name's Mark. His name is Mark. Yeah. So this uh, gospel was probably Peter, so it was basically Peter's gospel. Okay, yeah. So Mark's gospel is actually anonymous. There's nothing in the gospel. If you read Mark, then it doesn't ever say, love Mark, at the end of it. We don't know, you don't, we, don't, we would not know who wrote it from, from within it. Fetz? Oh, no, just that, that Peter was the source of Mark. Mark was probably written first. And Mark and Peter were friends, and, and they come up with uh, Paul's book. Yeah, yeah. So we, we do believe, I do think that what the things that you guys are saying are true. It's just that we don't know it from the text. And this comes back to where we started this morning, that the, the church fathers, the early writers, the early leaders, just like Ignatius is the one that we learn from him about this new church structure where the bishops kind of get promoted to like regional oversight. Um, these same group of guys, they wrote about Mark, about Mark's gospel and say, oh, you know who wrote that thing? That was Peter's boy, Mark. And so we have the, a lot of the stuff that we know. We're not making this stuff up. There's, there's the Bible, and then there's, or th from your perspective, there's like the New Testament writers, the apostles, the apostles, and then there's these group of leaders. And we have, you can buy them. You can go buy on a book, like all of the church fathers, all of the church, what we call the apologists, kind of like the first couple of generations. All of their writings are saved, not all of them, but tons of them are saved and copied, and we have them. And it's from there that we get things like, why do we know that Mark wrote it? Well, because these guys told us, and they lived at the time. Um, and, they, and they knew what was going on with that, right? And so Mark is that guy. But Mark had a, Mark had a, bit, of a bit of a complex history. Do you know that Mark significantly fell out of favor at one point? Do you know this story? Yeah, with Paul. So Paul, so Paul took Mark. This is a great story. Paul takes Mark on a missionary journey, and he totally flakes out on him. And, and Paul's like, you know what? Never again. Like, that guy is like a splintered reed. You cannot lean on him. He's no good. And his boy Barnabas who is the nicest guy in the town. Like, Paul, I love Paul. Paul is like your truth guy. Barnabas is your grace guy. 
And Paul's like, yeah, no way. We're, we're out. No more, no more Mark. And Barnabas is like, come on. Man, it's Mark. Mark's a good guy. He'll do a better job next time. He's like, not with me. You won't. And they get in a fight. And so Paul takes Silas and Timothy, and they go off, and Barnabas grabs Mark, and he brings him, and he restores him. And at the end of Paul's ministry, the last letter we have from Paul, 2 Timothy 4, Paul says, get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. And this one who had caused such, he had hurt Paul so deeply that Paul wouldn't have anything to do with him, is restored through the loving care of Barnabas and then gets reaffirmed. And then again, Peter here affirms him as his son. And he goes on to write basically Peter's gospel. Mark's gospel is Peter's thoughts and Mark was the scribe. And so isn't it amazing? You can blow it huge, right? And there might, there might be some downstream. That might not go great. But there is a thing within Christendom of restoration and forgiveness and that you get to kind of pick it back up and, and come again. And that's what happens with John Mark. All right, John. One of the things about Barnabas, too, Paul was first converted and uh, came back to Jerusalem and everybody was scared of him. Yeah. Barnabas is the one who took who took Paul and introduced him to the leaders of the church. That's exactly right. So he saw, he saw that uh, there's something happened in the sky. That's right. And that, so Barnabas's character, his, his name isn't Barnabas. His mom didn't call him Barnabas. It's Joseph, I think. Um, but they nicknamed him Barnabas, son of encouragement. And so he, is, he advocates for Paul when nobody will advocate for Paul. He advocates for John Mark when nobody will advocate for John Mark. And those are two guys that go on to make some significant contributions to the kingdom. So props to the people that have the ability to see through our failures to what we could be with a little bit of love and forgiveness and, and encouragement. Okay, we got to stop. That's First Peter 5. Here's where we're going to go next. Starting next week, we're going to do a new series um, on things that you need to know, broadly defined. We're going to have a, a confirmation class in the fall. I don't know when, October, November. Um, and so we're going to cover some stuff over the course of the summer on like, these foundational things that we need to know if we're going to walk with Jesus. And so we'll kick that off next week. We'll see you then.